Welcome back to episode four of The End Game, Insiders on Your Side, a podcast developed for senior lab executives by senior lab executives. Our intent of creating this podcast is to share valuable industry knowledge, tips, and strategies that when applied and properly executed will help lab executives and owners succeed, thrive, and ultimately become better prepared for your own future end game. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melissa Butterworth, and I am your proud host of the Endgame Podcast. If you're tuning in today and you received one of our VIP packages that included a golden ticket, today we have drawn the lucky number. And if you are holding the lucky number 18, congratulations. I want you to reach out to me at m18butterworth at advancedstrategicpartners.com and I will make sure and send you your prize. Congratulations once again. The lucky number is 18. Now, I grew up in the lab industry going all the way back to the late 90s and while I'm a true entrepreneur at heart, I did start my career in the hospital outreach lab business working for Ascension Health for the first nine years followed by a combined seven years working for the larger national laboratories. I am also a prior lab owner myself and the current CEO for Advanced Strategic Partners. We are a lab-specific M&A firm that was started by myself and my stepfather, Dan Lucky, back in 2008. And unlike any of our competitors in this space, each member of our team grew up in the laboratory diagnostic sector. This is one of the key competitive advantages if you decide to take your company to the market and hire an M&A firm if you work with our team. We understand the day-to-day challenges that you as lab executives and owners face. Now, over the course of the last several years in this new post-COVID world, I think it's safe to say that we have all experienced many changes. And as a result, we have had to quickly adapt and pivot in order to make sure that we remain successful. This is no different than our organization. For example, over the last 18 months, we've partnered with Take Charge, a corporation owned and operated by the prior CEO of the largest lab in the world with Mr. Gary Huff. In addition, we partnered with the prior chair and head of M&A for the healthcare division from the prestigious law firm of McDonnell Hopkins with Mr. Rick Cooper. And finally, we've entered into a strategic alliance with Acumen so that we can better serve hospital systems and large labs with a true one-stop shop solution for all of your laboratory diagnostic testing needs. It was you, our respective clients, who asked for this additional help and this additional expertise, and we listened. In addition, it was you, our clients, who asked for this podcast, and I am so excited to announce that we launched this based on your feedback. Now, over the course of the next year, you're going to be hearing from strategic thought leaders in the lab space from a wide range of areas, including mergers and acquisitions, operations, legal, sales and marketing, human resources, compliance, billing, regulatory, lab stewardship, and many, many more exciting areas. We have what I consider to be an incredible lineup of guest speakers planned, and you are not going to want to miss any of our future podcasts. We will be posting all of our podcast episodes on our home website at www.advancedstrategicpartners.com. If you happen to be listening to this podcast and you're interested in selling your lab at any point in the future and you wish to have a free 60-minute consultation to learn more about current multiples and the state of the market, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn at Melissa Butterworth or at M18Butterworth at advancedstrategicpartners.com. 
Today, we will be talking about a very complex question that comes up over and over again by almost all lab owners. And that question is, is what is the value of my lab? Now, as we discussed on the last several episodes surrounding valuation, this is not a cut and dry question and neither is the answer. Therefore, we've broken the subject down into a series of four episodes to ensure that we cover all aspects that will drive the value of your lab to ensure you achieve the maximum valuation. In the first episode, we learned about what valuation is and what the more common valuation methods are. We also learned about the more common method of valuation in the small to mid-sized lab world, that being adjusted EBITDA. We also learned some common items to look for when coming up with your own adjusted EBITDA number. In episode two, we learned about the 10 key things to prepare prior to going to market. And in episode three, we learned about seven key areas that make your lab more attractive in the eyes of the buyer. In today's episode, we will focus on the difference between an asset versus a stock transaction and the two types of buyers in today's market and how both the structure and the type of buyer can significantly impact valuation. Now, before I jump into talking about the differences between an asset and a stock transaction, I think it's important to state that we're going to be covering at a very high level some of the advantages and disadvantages of each. It is very important that you hire yourself a competent legal firm that has lab-specific M&A expertise and experience so that you can delve into it in a much deeper uh, from a much deeper perspective so that you understand all of the nuances and how each one of them are going to affect you both from a legal perspective, valuation perspective, but also from a tax perspective. So let's jump right into some of the differences between an asset versus a stock transaction. I think an overlooked area of the M&A process itself is typically what is the seller selling and what is the buyer buying? You know, it's a pretty accurate statement to say that companies themselves aren't really sold per se. Instead, the buyer is typically either acquiring certain assets of the company or they're, or they're going to be looking to acquire the company's stock. Buyers typically prefer asset deals over stock transactions because they are a lot cleaner uh, the due diligence process is much more expedited because there's not uh, the number sheer number of documents that you're going to have to go through in a, as you would in a stock transaction. And the reason that they prefer the asset transactions are because they aren't assuming the seller's outstanding liabilities. Now, let's look at some of the advantages of an asset transaction. Number one, a major tax advantage is that the buyer can step up the basis of many of the assets over their current tax values, and they can obtain tax deductions for depreciation and or amortization. Number two, with an asset transaction, the goodwill, which is the amount paid for a company over and above the value of its tangible assets, it can be amortized over a straight line basis for a 15-year period for tax purposes, whereas in a stock transaction, the acquirer is buying shares of the seller's company and goodwill cannot be deducted until the stock is later sold. So that's pretty important to understand uh, from a tax perspective. 
Number three, the buyers can dictate what, if any, liabilities it's going to assume in the transaction. And this limits the buyer's exposure to liabilities, once again, that are either large, unknown, or perhaps not stated by the seller. Number four, the buyer can select which employees they want to retain and which ones they do not without impacting their unemployment rates. So these are just some very high level um, pros of a asset transaction. Let's look at some of the disadvantages of an asset transaction. I think number one is the fact that the contracts, more specifically with customers, with insurance uh, carriers, with hospitals, with physician offices, with suppliers, they may need to be renegotiated by the new owner because in an asset transaction, they typically do not carry over like they would if it were a stock transaction. Number two, the tax cost to the seller is typically higher. So it's really important that the seller understands this and that they consider it and build it into the uh, final asking price of their lab. Number three, the assignable contracts may be very limited, uh, whereas in a stock transaction, most of those contracts will typically come over. Number four, assets may need to be retitled, and this can be very time-consuming. Number five, employment agreements with key employees may need to be renegotiated, and this can be a very lengthy process. Uh, it can cause a lot of stress, and it's something that the buyer needs to take into consideration. Number six, the seller still needs to liquidate any assets that are not purchased and pay off any liabilities that may not be assumed and take care of any and all leases that may need to be terminated. For example, we recently had a transaction whereby our seller sold off the assets of his company, including his client list. Uh, a number of patient service centers. He had about 20 patient service centers and the buyer wanted to assume five of those. So it left our seller in a position where he did achieve maximum valuation because of the way that it was structured. But he also was left with over 15 patient service centers and leases that he had to uh, get out of and he had to close down post-transaction. So this is something that you need to think about when you're a seller and you're looking to structure it as an asset uh, transaction. Let's look at a stock transaction. Now let's look at a stock transaction. A stock purchase is simpler in concept than an asset purchase, though it can be a lot more time consuming just due to the sheer amount of due diligence that is going to need to be undertaken. The acquirer buys the stock of the seller's company and takes the seller as it finds it in regards to both the assets and the liabilities. Most of the contracts that the seller has, such as their leases and permits, will traditionally transfer automatically over to the new owner. Now, this isn't always the case, so we advise all of our clients to make sure that they have their contracts reviewed by the same law firm that you look at hiring who has M&A lab expertise. Now, for all of these reasons, it's often more straightforward to have a stock transaction over a asset transaction. However, it is uh, much more detailed and does take a lot more time to get through. So some of the advantages of a stock purchase. Number one, the acquirer doesn't have to bother with costly revaluations and having to retitle all of the individual assets. 
Number two, buyers can typically assume all of the non-assignable licenses and permits without having to go through and obtain consent. Now, this isn't always the case, but it is uh, at a high level uh, fairly uh, routine that this is the case. Number three, buyers may also be able to avoid paying transfer taxes. And number four, more simple and commonly used than an asset transaction is a stock transaction. Now, that's not always the case. We've seen more and more deals recently being structured as an asset transaction. And this tends to bode well and in favor to our sellers. And I'm going to talk about that uh, in a few minutes, about some of the transactions that we've done that were sheer asset transactions with strategic buyers. And the valuations were much more favorable and were able to be maximized for our sellers in, in most of these cases. So what are some of the disadvantages of a stock transaction? I think the main disadvantage is that the acquirer receives neither the step-up tax benefit nor the advantage of being able to handpick the assets that they want to assume and the liabilities that they want to avoid. Number two, all of the assets and liabilities typically transfer at their carrying value. Number three, the only way to get rid of unwanted liabilities is to create separate agreements, whereas in the seller agrees to take them back. Now, we have not seen this be very successful. We know it's very time consuming, but it is something to know that you can consider if you're looking to do a stock transaction. Number four. Certain applicable securities laws uh, have to be dealt with when you're dealing with publicly traded company, and this can really complicate the process, especially when the seller has a lot of shareholders. And additionally, some of those shareholders may not wish to sell their stock, which can drag out the process and increase the cost of the uh, entire M&A process. Number five, goodwill is not tax deductible when it exists in the form of a share price premium. So choosing the form of an acquisition transaction can have significant tax and other business-related consequences, as we are learning in today's podcast for both the seller and the buyers. And it's very important that both parties explore and consider the benefits and consequences of each type of transaction. And it's important that you do this with the assistance of a tax attorney, with the assistance of an M&A advisory firm in combination with a law firm that has the experience in M&A lab transactions. So in addition to understanding whether as a seller you want to structure the deal as an asset transaction or a stock transaction from a legal and tax perspective, there is also the need to have the basic understanding of the two types of buyers in today's market because they can greatly affect valuation. They can also affect how the deal is going to look post-close and they can also play into the buyer's overall strategy. So what are the two types of buyers in today's market? Number one, you have strategic buyers and number two, you've got non-strategic buyers. A strategic buyer will look at your business where there is potential overlap in services, including patient service centers, lab testing sites, couriers, 
phlebotomist, existing insurance contracts. Now keep in mind, they may have better or worse rates than yours, which can significantly alter the value of your existing book of business. That's very important to understand. And it's very important as to why you need an M&A advisor who has the expertise and potentially working in your geographical location, because they're likely going to know uh, some of these answers. The buyer is also going to be looking for complementary areas where they can perform your send outs that you may be sending outside of your own network. They're also going to be looking to see if there are additional synergies and areas where they can, in fact, uh, cut costs so that they can take your business and drop it into their existing fixed book of uh, business and fixed expenses, and therefore driving the valuation of your lab uh, upwards. A strategic buyer who already has contracts won't necessarily need your contracts, and they will likely purchase chosen assets of your company and leave behind the risk associated with having to buy the stock of your company, as we've learned in looking at uh, the difference between an asset and a stock transaction. In many cases, a strategic buyer is going to likely pay you based on a multiple of top line collected revenue because most of the expenses that you have as a lab owner will be absorbed into the buyer's fixed expenses as we've just talked about and will increase their profit margins. Now, I'm going to talk about a recent transaction whereby we structured it with a strategic buyer as a asset transaction and whereby our client ended up getting 3.8 times top line revenue because it was structured in this manner. So we had a laboratory that had over 20 patient service centers. It was in a geographical area that a lot of the strategic labs already had existing lab testing facilities. There was a lot of overlap with the patient service centers. There was overlap with the existing clientele, including, um, you know, IT that was already interfaced with much of the existing clientele of our seller. Uh, there were tremendous amounts of uh, overlap in the courier networks and the phlebotomy networks, and it essentially enabled the buyer to structure the deal as a pure asset play and buy our seller's existing book of business, buy our seller's handful of patient service centers, and that's all they purchased, right? They ended up leaving behind um, many of the patient service centers, many of the leases, they left behind not needing the main testing facility. And it enabled our seller to achieve maximum valuation. But keep in mind, if you were the seller in this type of scenario, you were still going to be left behind with the nuances of having to deal with all of the leftover liabilities um, that the acquirer does not acquire. Now, a non-strategic buyer may be someone who needs your contracts. Uh, they may need your lab testing facility. It may be either a lab roll-up, it may be a private equity or a family fund, or potentially a venture capital group looking to enter into the lab sector. This type of buyer may be someone who has existing lab operations in other parts of the country, and their intent will be to keep most of your existing operations whole. The buyer would need to accomplish this through a stock transaction, as we've learned 
uh, in earlier in this podcast in order for the insurance contracts to carry over. And therefore, they would likely pay a standard multiplier of adjusted EBITDA. And in almost all situations, a strategic buyer will end up paying much more for your lab, and you're likely going to achieve maximum valuation with this basic understanding. Now, you ask yourself, okay, if uh, the only offer I have is from a non-strategic, it's from a uh, a group that's looking to do a lab roll-up, and they're only willing to pay me uh, based on adjusted EBITDA. So what should that number look like? Well, we've seen the range go anywhere from four times adjusted EBITDA all the way up to nine times adjusted EBITDA. And there are many factors that affect this number. And if you happen to be one of those lab owners and you need more information on this, reach out to me at m18butterworth at advancedstrategicpartners.com. And we can talk to you more about how uh, something like that could look and what would make the range be so significantly different going from four all the way up to nine. Now, in every episode, we try to share a handful of helpful tips for you to consider based on our experience of having successfully completed over 80 plus transactions. And today I'm going to share one question that commonly comes up with potential sellers looking to sell. A lot of times they'll come to us and say, look, Melissa, we already have an offer from one of the strategic buyers and it seems pretty good. And we know all of the key folks at the larger strategic buying entities in our markets. Why shouldn't we simply proceed forward with this offer that we have in hand versus having to go through the entire M&A process? We advise our clients not to go in this direction because it takes away your ability to negotiate the price upwards. For example, when the market knows that you will have competition with other prospective buyers, it's going to force their hand and it will ensure a truly competitive situation. And it will likely lead to a greater maximum end game for you. Now, we have seen some sellers ignore this advice and rarely does it work in their favor. The buyers will spend a few months going back and forth with the seller, and typically it will lead nowhere fairly quickly. When buyers see that you have hired an M&A firm to handle the process for you, they know you're serious and they know that you will likely have to go through and abide by the M&A guidelines that your advisor will create. And they know that they will have to follow certain parameters if they want to play ball. So... I know we've covered a lot in today's episode, but this concludes part four of our four-part series surrounding valuation. To summarize the key points from today, the structure of lab M&A deals can affect the valuation of the sale. They are traditionally asset transactions and stock transactions. Buyers typically prefer asset transactions because they are a lot cleaner and they typically don't assume the outstanding liabilities that would go along with the stock transaction. There are some cases that dictate that a stock transaction makes better sense, including the need of contracts that a buyer may wish to assume. There are two types of buyers, strategic and non-strategic. A strategic buyer would likely pay maximum value for your lab by recognizing many synergies between their entity and between the uh, entity that is being sold. It takes a savvy M&A advisor with experience in dealing with multiple buying entities to know where you can achieve your maximum valuation. If you have an offer in hand and have not gone through the M&A process, you would be doing yourself an injustice, but not allowing a competitive process to drive up the price. 
And finally, remember, if you were holding the golden ticket with the number 18, you are the lucky winner of today's podcast. I sincerely hope you've gained some tips and increased your knowledge on how both the structure and the type of buyer can affect the valuation of your lab. If you would like to listen to this episode again, you can go to www.advancedstrategicpartners.com and click on the podcast tab. I look forward to seeing you on future podcast episodes and hope you all have a great day. Signing off until our next episode.